my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And it's Shocktober at the Important Cinema Club. Oh. <laughs> I want to suck your blood. I'm a mummy. That's a classic mummy tagline, right? It's alive. Yeah, there you go. Good stuff. And this week, we're talking about Kiyoshu Kurosawa. And it's one of those episodes where I know that Will had never seen one of this person's movies before I picked the topic for it. That's really embarrassing, because Kiyoshi Kurosawa, he's a major international filmmaker, film festival darling, critical darling. Uh, but yeah, I'd never seen a single one of his movies. Let's get down to the brass tacks. Why had you never gone out to see any of these films? Even something like Tokyo Sonata, which I believe was Oscar nominated the year that it came out, right? Yeah, no idea why I never saw that. Is it because you're like, ugh, boring? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. It seemed kind of middle-brow, right? It feels um, like work. So slow. Give me my Hong Kong movies. Also, like, J-horror as a phenomenon, like, pretty much passed me by. I didn't see... At, at the time when they were really big, I didn't see a lot of them. And he was heavily associated with that. Although it's crazy that I didn't see, like cure at least uh, but also his movies took a long time to actually come out in north america and we should point out that when his movies came out it followed a wave of japanese horror being dropped to dvd and if you were a movie fan at that time you got burned and you know one two three burns and you're like all right that's enough for me if i'm not obsessed with this i'm not gonna follow down this track anymore that's true because i saw a lot of tartan asia extreme oh, movies God. i saw abnormal yeah. beauty and a tale of two sisters and lots of other stuff uh, abnormal beauty is hong kong and tale of two sisters is south korean yeah i mean i can't remember i saw them 15 years ago but but they all fell within that template and i can understand you being like no thank you this is not for me so it is not an avenue that i shall pursue i'm gonna say something shocking that people may not know is that I think my two extremes of my filmmaking style that I would like to adapt in my own uh, movies, Troy Hark and Kyoshi Kurosawa. Those are like my favorites. And, uh, you know, they're on two opposite sides, I would say, of the kind of way that they approach storytelling. I found that interesting. I saw you mention in a Letterboxd review for uh, Pulse that you stole a lot from it for impossible horror. I didn't immediately, I, I mean, I know that there's a J horror influence on the first 30 minutes of impossible horror, but like, I, I think your most obvious influences are the more extroverted filmmakers. What did you take from Kiyoshi Kurosawa? I love the sense in Kiyoshi Kurosawa's films of a kind of sense of unease that he can just let the camera rest there and follow his characters. And he'll say in interviews that he is not about the big like, rawr, scare. To him, what's scary is something in the background slowly approaching the character. And what I love about his movies is that they also remind me of the cinema of someone like Tarkovsky. Very slow scenes. Often the camera is gliding to follow the action. And you get as well as a very arch sense of humor in his films. I mean, not really in Cure or Pulse, but in his other stuff as well. And even in his horror films, you get that sense through the cutting, which is often humorous, that you'll get a big, long, slow scene, and then it will cut to like a close-up of something or cut in the middle of action into another scene, always giving you just enough information to kind of hang on, but not enough information to paint a full picture of what's going on. I think horror movies really lend themselves to rewatchability because they prioritize atmosphere and mood and dread more than uh, plot. So a lot of my favorite horror movies, I feel like, are ones that... Um, became favorites over time. They kind of planted seeds the first time I saw them, and I kept thinking about them, kept returning to them, and they've become like places you revisit. 
so in a way, I kind of wish we were doing this episode 10 years from now uh, because I found Cure and Pulse, which I watched this week, very frustrating viewing experiences, didn't conform to any of my expectations. Um, I mean, I saw them both a couple days ago and they have stuck with me since then, uh, stuck with me in a very like in a, in a very in a very pungent kind of way even though I didn't really enjoy the experience of watching them so and I think they will continue to stick with me I didn't find them pleasurable but I understand it's difficult for you to like think about them as an experience that you're like I would return to that I have to say as well is that Kurosawa I find very interesting because he is presenting to me a style of filmmaking that as an artist myself, I can imitate in some way. In the same way that Sam Raimi, you know, he's putting his own mark on filmmaking to give it a value beyond production. Kurosawa is doing the same thing because he started right at the bottom making pink films. So he had to find a way to impose himself on the material, to find his own angle on things without breaking the bank. I mean, I've read interviews where he said, producers liked me because I was weird, but I made my days. Like I would deliver them a movie that had the stuff that needed to be marketed, but what was within those confines, I could do whatever I wanted because I didn't demand anything on the production that it couldn't deliver. And that I find very fascinating as well. Speaking of his pink films, I watched a movie you recommended, Bumpkin Soup from 1985. This is one of his very early films. It is uh, a Japanese pink film, so like a, a a softcore sex film. And it does have a certain amount of sex scenes and nude scenes, although stylistically it's very different from the sort of pink films that most people were making. Uh, it's also stylistically quite different from Kiyoshi Kurosawa's better known movies, um, except for the effect it had on me, which is that I found it uh, a tough sit and a bit unpleasant. Really? I thought it's fun and goofy and all over the place. I actually do like this movie. I don't want to be too hard on it because it, it is... Uh, so obviously, obviously, he's heavily influenced by Godard, not just late 60s Godard. He just watched like Weekend like 12 times before he made Bumpkin Soup because <laughs> it's essentially a fan film. I also feel like he's very influenced by 80s Godard, like every man for himself. Something about all those scenes of like um, women sitting around in natural light and then looking to the left and then looking to the right and then looking ahead. I don't know. So, a lot of that stuff feels like the kind of stuff Godard was doing at the time. Anyway, the, the plot of it is this uh, young girl from a more reserved background comes to a college. And at this college, um, it's it's hell's a poppin', folks. There are crazy things going on everywhere. Lots of horny students fucking. There's also a professor who is studying shame in Japanese society. And there are many moments when he uh, does his theories of shame that, you know, he does a whole monologue, for instance, about uh, our society. We have body parts that we cover up. So we put cloth on them. But the cloth itself makes the body part more shameful than it was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, lots of Godardian, like, kind of empty monologuing from characters, often straight to camera. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of I Am Curious Yellow, that kind <laughs> of, like, free-flowing, um, a little bit less than the sum of its parts shenanigans. But it's got a lot of, like, beautiful framing and weird cutting, and, like, the sex stuff will suddenly appear out of nowhere, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm watching a sex movie. Okay. Oh, ve very jarring, very assaultive, isn't it? And But it's done in kind of a playful way, but one that's also, like a lot of his filmmaking, very controlled. 
And that's the thing that I found fascinating doing more research this week is that listening to some of the actors and technical people that he worked with, they said stuff like, we have no idea what's going on. It is all up in his head. But on his own scripts, he actually has all of the like personal histories and emotional connections between characters mapped out in a very like scientific way, almost a Hitchcockian way. But then he does not share that with anybody else. <laughs> what path did he take from that film, Bumpkin Soup, to Cure in 1997? And I think Cure is in some ways his breakout film. So I'll try to go as quickly as possible. After Bumpkin Soup, uh, the biggest production that he made was a film called Sweet Home. It was a big theatrical film that was produced by the uh, co-star of Bumpkin Soup, who also acted in the film and is most famous for the director of Tampopo, Juzo Itami. And the thing about Sweet Home, it was a fairly big production, a haunted house film. Kyushu Kurosawa and Itami did not get along. Itami took the movie away from Kurosawa and re-edited it himself. So Kurosawa has kind of disowned Sweet Home, even though there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. Uh, there's supposedly Dick Smith did the special effects, the guy who's most famous for working on stuff like The Exorcist, which, I don't know, Dick Smith also worked on like some Hong Kong films at that time. So he was kind of like, you know, he hit the um, skids. So he was probably just using stuff that he had. Sweet Home is interesting, most famous for being the uh, basis for a video game that the guy who made Resident Evil made and was a big blah, blah, blah. We're not a video game podcast. And from there, Kurosawa actually went straight into direct-to-video stuff. And he says himself that direct-to-video stuff was looked down upon by anybody else that made movies. They're like, they're not real movies. Uh, you know, they don't really have any value. They are made quickly and disposable. But he got together with Sho Ikawa, the actor that many people may know him. He stars in Dead or Alive, the Takashi Miike films. He's a guy that's not Riki Takeuchi. And this was like the biggest uh, V Cinema star, which is the DTV uh, thing in Japan, that there ever was. And he let Kurosawa do whatever he wanted. So he got to experiment a bunch on some Yakuza films. There was a Suit Yourself or Shoot Yourself series. And that kind of kept going up until Cure hit, which I believe, I mean, I'm probably mistaken, was like his first real attempt again at... Uh, a horror picture and it was going to be theatrically released so this film is about kenichi who's a somewhat troubled somewhat emotionally repressed police officer detective he has a wife who suffers from some kind of uh, mental illness and that demands a lot of his emotional energy he's investigating a series of murders uh, that take place across Japan. All the murders end with the victim with a big X slashed across their throat. But the murders are all committed by different people. And when they're arrested, the uh, assailants, the murderers, all confess to the crime, but they can't remember why they did it. And none of them seem to have any sort of discernible motive. But there's one man who connects all of these people. His name is Mimaya, and when the police arrest him, he's apparently suffering from some kind of memory loss, doesn't know who he is, doesn't know anything about his own past. I mean, I guess to reveal more would be to venture into spoiler territory, but there is a sort of uh, psychological back and forth that goes between these two these two men, the officer and the suspect. So if Weekend is a thing that inspired Bumpkin Soup, uh, Kurosawa definitely saw Seven before he made this movie, <laughs> because that's the style that he's going for. But unlike uh, David Fincher's vision of serial killer and cop, uh, Kurosawa is almost like he steps back from it. There's almost a 
removed the accent that's going on. Like, there's a big climactic moment that happens at the end that's as tossed off as could be, and that's what I love about it. And the movie is edited and shot in such an elliptical way as well is that you're often like jumping into the middle of something and you don't quite know what's going on before you go to something else almost as if the audience themselves aren't quite sure what's going on and every time you think you have a handle on it it's taken away from you like the main characters in this movie who are not just unsure of what's going on but can't even believe what they're seeing with their own eyes oh yeah so what really surprised me about these movies was how they unfold in these long punishingly long takes often medium shots the camera will move it's not exactly static but he doesn't he doesn't direct your eye in the frame he doesn't tell you where to look he doesn't tell you what's important as you indicated earlier sometimes things will emerge into the frame like something in the background will will take on more importance and you know the films do have this incredible sense of Uh, dread and unease and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that he's not directing your emotional reaction like he doesn't use a lot of music the actors their acting style is pretty low-key I wouldn't I wouldn't quite say Brissonian but it's but it's low-key in Cure the detective who's the protagonist of the film actually states outright that he has been bottling up his emotions his entire life and that's what he's coming into conflict with trying to solve this case or find the motivation or why this has been happening at all and I think that what's fascinating about Cure is like why is it unsettling and you know watching Kurosawa either talk about or just revisiting his films it's made me consider that a lot and like Cure is unsettling because it's all about the idea of loss of control that you yourself be living your life and then you do something that in the moment makes it feel like it makes sense but it had such disastrous consequences because you're at the doing something violent or against your will and because of the presentation in cure it's not like oh my god it's something horrible and oh yeah it's intense it's presented so matter-of-factly that's what's disturbing about that's, it that's you know that's really interesting and i i wonder like when i watch the movie Okay, obviously there is a very strong sense of control. He's a very uh, engaged and controlling filmmaker. I don't feel like I'm in control because I don't necessarily know what to do with these images that are in front of me. I don't feel in control of the plot all the time. I don't really feel in control of the mood. That's what I mean is that this is a story like Seven that is recognizable, but the way that he's presenting it to you is constantly pulling it out from under you. And by showing stuff in these long takes you would think that you would get a grasp on it. Like, this is the simplest way you can present something. In one long take, uninterrupted, he's not telling you where to look, but you can absorb it. But because of the way he cuts it and the way that it's told and the way the characters are reacting, you are lost. You're like, I don't know what's going on or what's going to happen next. Is this real? And because it's often in such a low-key way, there's no big sound effects, no big musical cues, that is that much more unnerving. And, like, your reaction to it uncomfortable because this is not how we are supposed to absorb movies this is kind of like like a broken film as if like did he miss something am i not in control but he is in control and it's a control to throw you off of your game as a viewer and that's what i find really interesting about it because not many filmmakers work that way something else i find interesting about the movie is just how placid the surfaces are but i i do feel like there are deep and painful emotions roiling underneath all of these surfaces. Um, and I'm not, I'm not quite sure how I can articulate or explain that, or if it's something that we as an audience project onto it. I just know that having seen Cure, there just feels something very profoundly like spiritually ugly about it. I actually don't mean this in a bad way, but like, 
I don't know. It feels like the soul of the movie is is evil. Oh, I mean, cure and pulse, and we'll get to pulse, which I think is a little bit more literal with those metaphors. It is about the loss of value in life. Like at a certain point, it's like, why do I keep going? Like, is there anything, any reason or any joy in my life? And in both those films, there's nothing. It's like, you want to solve this case. Why? Someone is showing you the reality of the world and that it doesn't have value and that everything sucks, which is why you're kind of killing yourself. Like, you know, if you want to be literal, the cure of the title, the cure is, you know, life has no meaning. I'm giving you that to you. So whichever way that you want to interpret or you want to go beyond that, that's up to you. And the way that people do it is like killing themselves or killing other people. That is their reaction to this kind of response that is given to them against their Now, will. I know that Kurosawa emerged as a filmmaker during those economic boom years in Japan in the 90s. And I think there's also, maybe I'm projecting this onto the films, but there is this sense of like the end of the millennium, the beginning of a new millennium. Uh, Technology is advancing rapidly. Japanese society is very prosperous. But the films themselves, they take place in these barren, empty cityscapes. I mean, for big, prosperous depictions of Japanese society, um, it's just incredible how empty the films feel. And obviously the films, especially the next movie we're going to talk about, are about loneliness and isolation but it's rare to see a movie that so uh, pungently evokes the sensation there was a running gag between me and my friend christian the star of teddy bomb that every kiyoshi kurosawa film finishes with the end of the world it's like everything is over every one of his movies there's nothing left you might as well just give up i mean that's how charisma ends uh, another movie that he was made and that's essentially how pulse ends but pulse is essentially like what happens after the end of the world what about the like final stragglers who are only realizing that everything is done we have reached the point of humanity where seemingly everybody should be happy and everything is great but we've only realized this technology has only brought clearer that we are more alone than we have ever been and that there is no hope anywhere. That is essentially the thesis of Pulse, and it's so goddamn depressing. You know, I thought Pulse was going to be dated because it's an internet thriller, uh, but it's probably the least dated internet thriller I've seen. And and this movie also was another kind of international breakthrough for him. It was the first of his movies to play at the Cannes Film Festival. It eventually spawned an American remake, which I have not seen. Uh, I think that it only takes the uh, base ideas from the movie. Uh, Like, oh, there's ghosts in the internet and nothing else. And there are two Bulgarian DTV sequels to the American remake. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Well, anyway, the film has a two-pronged plot, uh, which and they eventually converge in the last act. On the one hand, there's Mishi. She's a young computer programmer. She has a co-worker who hasn't been showing up to work, so she goes in to check on him. When she goes and to see him he hangs himself while she's there but he's working on this computer desk and she and her co-workers check out the computer desk and it has all these these bizarre images on it and in the other uh, strand of the plot there's a young man named Ryosuke he's a student and he's just signed up for this exciting new innovation called the World Wide Web whenever he goes on the internet his computer keeps showing him these bizarre websites they're like these video streams of people who are in rooms very dank and depressing looking rooms just 
wandering around, acting bizarrely. And eventually this escalates to him seeing more disturbing footage. And a friend tells him the theory that, well, maybe these are lost souls who are trying to find their way back into the physical realm. What I love about this movie is in interviews, Kurosawa just states plainly like, yeah, the ring was really popular. Producers wanted us to make another horror movie. Uh, the, you know, baddie in the ring comes out of the TV. Why don't they come out of a computer? That was the main starting premise of Pulse. But then Kurosawa, what's great about him is that he is actually like a big cinephile. I actually have a book of him just talking about horror movies with a professor and just like his love for them. And when you read about the movies he loves, he comes from such a weird perspective on them is that he's watched a lot of them. So his tastes tend to go to the weirder. He loves Toby Hooper. He's his favorite horror director. And you know what his favorite uh, Toby Hooper film is? Spontaneous Combustion, which no one will pick as their favorite Toby Hooper film. And like, so in Pulse, his way to approach a story, he asked himself, why are people scared of ghosts? And that is a very common refrain is like, what are you scared of, of something dead that's coming after you? Because in like uh, Japanese lore, there's some stories where like the ghosts kill someone and then the person that got killed, they get together with the ghost and they live happily ever after because, you know, once you're dead, you have no worries and you know what's happening after in the afterlife. His idea was Pulse was asking, what if the ghost could come to the world and tell you there is nothing it is lonely and it is miserable and I'm trying to bring that impact to you. And that's what all the ghosts are trying to do in this movie. Saying, like, I've died. There is nothing left in this world. It is miserable. And that is what is truly unsettling about a film like this. Because the ghosts, they don't physically hurt people. They just make them so depressed that they eventually evaporate. Which is, according to Kurosawa, a fate worse than death. Because you don't even live on in the afterlife. If you evaporate, you're just gone. That's like... It, you're stuck in this weird kind of semi-space where you're alone forever. You essentially give up. I mean, Pulse is all about depression. That's what it is. Essentially, every character in the movie gets depressed in a world that, from the get-go, you never see any life in it. It's always completely empty. And by, like, the tenth shot is an unsettling shot of someone sitting in a bus and the rear screen projection is wrong. It's like slightly at the weird angle that it's not supposed to be just to create an unsettling feeling in the audience. I gotta say, I had a really hard time looking at this movie just visually. Like it's a movie of flavorless apartments and sterile computer labs and dank dark hallways and the light never seems to be quite bright enough you know no, why why should you keep leaving will just take your own life it's over there's nothing else you're always gonna be alone oh goodness I, i've seen people on the internet uh, talking about how intensely moved they are by this film and and i don't i don't quite i don't quite feel that although i can imagine being in a place where i would feel that you know uh, it's interesting to interpret like i don't get disposed but what like the end of the movie means because the character seems to be kind of happy with the way that things go, even though that the world is ending around them. And like, what is the director's interpretation of it? What I love about the movie is that like, there are so many little hints of a bigger picture that you never really get. It's like, oh, don't go to the room where there's like red tape because you know, uh, don't go in there. Never explain, you never really get the context around what that is. You can interpret your own, but that's what I really like about these kind of horror movies is no answers are given to you on a silver platter. And it's not something jumping around a corner and scaring you. The characters in the film even like talk the tropes of horror characters. Like, I know you're not here. I know you can't hurt me. So if I just confront you, nothing can happen. 
But, you know, that just leads to more horrifying realizations instead of the catharsis that these protagonists who know they're in a horror film are trying to achieve. I guess I was, yeah, kind of interested in the ending that it seems to be, I mean, without spoiling everything, it seems to be that the solution to this plague of loneliness is to just become more isolated than you've ever been before, right? Uh, Kurosawa, he says in an interview on the Blu-ray that, like, for him, freedom is in some sense loneliness because then you have to separate yourself from things that would tie you down and by consequence, you are not free. But that doesn't make you happy. That makes you miserable in a different kind of way, which I think is really interesting within the context of the movie as a whole. I think this movie, though, is engaging, is that it's, uh, while it is overbearing, I think it's beautifully directed and edited. There's a shot where someone commits suicide and Kurosawa shoots it in one long take and they did it with like wires and stuff like that. And it's so unsettling, especially the reaction from the person who sees it which feels like a real reaction. Someone being like, they don't scream. They kind of look at it for a moment and then they look away because they're not quite sure what to do or what they've seen. And I think it's stuff like that, that in the moment, it may not like hit you, but thinking about it later, that's when it'll like sink in. And I kind of like, uh, be absorbed into the way that you approach these kind of images or these ideas. I did say earlier that some of my favorite horror movies are like places that I return to, and I can see myself returning to these movies. They do feel like they they, they feel like less movies than states of mind. As opposed to going like, oh man, that movie's so miserable. I don't want to go back to that. Sometimes I like to sit in the darkness for a little while, though, you know? I don't know why these movies, I like them so much, because I don't like grimdark stuff. But this is on like a weird level where he's not imposing that darkness within you. It doesn't even have the fatalism of something like The Ring, where characters are fighting against something that you know that they won't be able to surmount because they are doomed. It's kind of like almost grappling with these realities and what it means to have to deal with these things or live with these things as opposed to just like, ah, no, I'm going to die at the end of the movie. And that's the big shock. So we didn't actually talk about uh, the rest of his career because this is Shocktober. We mostly focused on his horror stuff. And I think there would be a whole other can of worms that would be interesting to explore because like, you know, he kept making horror movies, but there's also, like I mentioned, Tokyo Sonata, Journey to the Shore, Before We Vanish, The Ends of the Earth, a whole other like art film filmmaking side of Kurosawa that I would have to spend like another two weeks exploring to be able to talk about at length in any, um, you know, constructive way, I think. So do we have any letters? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send any of your questions or comments to importantcinemaclub at gmail.com. This first letter is a bit of a long one. It's a story, but I feel like there's stuff that we can jump off of. It's from David DeSizniki. It goes, hello, I'm sorry for mangling your name. That's not part of the letter. That's just me talking. I have some important information to share that is tangentially related to cinema, but thought you might enjoy it since I suppose it could be considered part of the wider world of Jerry Lewis. Growing up in the American Midwest, I attended many minor league baseball games. Because the quality and scale of the baseball being played is somewhat limited, minor league games tend to feature lots of added entertainment. Mascot races, seat raffles, post-game fireworks, etc. Of these attempts to get people to drive out to the Chicago exurbs to watch single of Florida Marlins associated baseball, the most memorable by far was Myron Noodleman. Myron Noodleman was essentially a homage to Jerry Lewis's nutty professor character. <laughs> a guy dressed 
dressed in ill-fitting tweed, thick glasses, held together by masking tape, buck teeth, and greaseback hair, prowling through the stands, performing classic bits like rubbing his teeth and making an exaggerated squeaking noise, holding out his hand for a high five, then pulling it back away at the last second, and asking a female spectator for a kiss on the cheek, but turning towards her as she leans in to receive a full li uh, lip kiss. Possibly some type of crime. Definitely some type of crime. As a child of the 1990s, I didn't know who Jerry Lewis was or what Myron was going for. Eddie Murphy was my nutty professor. I just thought Myron was a local nerd whose presence at the ballpark made me uneasy. I understood it was supposed to be funny, but I always hoped that he would stay away from my section. He once tricked my younger brother with his fake high five, which I honestly think harmed his self-confidence going forward. <laughs> my young brother was pretty young at the time and thought he had made a new friend. I've since seen a bunch of Jerry Lewis films and come to appreciate his humor, and I go as far to say that Myron and Jerry inform my enjoyment overall of that type of humor. A weird guy who shows up that everyone has to deal with. Anyway, I learned that Myron passed away a few years ago. <laughs> There's plenty of YouTube footage of Myron in action if you're curious. I realized there was a man behind Ma Myron and a backstory to discover, but I prefer not to look into it. I will always treasure my memories of a mysterious Jerry Lewis Tulpa entity prowling through a minor league baseball stadium. Love the show and thanks for doing it, David. You know what this email made me think of? It's crazy that even in the 90s, there were Jerry Lewis impersonators going around to young kids who were not watching his movies. That he was such a big pop culture phenomenon that it was just, you know, everybody knows what this kind of joke is. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the boomers who grew up with him would have been in their 30s, right? When the 90s were around. I mean, Jerry Lewis was in a series of Pepsi commercials that John Landis directed in the 90s. You can you can look those up. I guess he was still a presence, wasn't he? I mean, The Nutty Professor was a sufficient enough brand in the 90s that they revived it with Eddie Murphy. But I don't think that like the association was with Jerry Lewis. Like no one's like, I love that Jerry Lewis movie. Let's go see the Eddie Murphy one. It's more like a suits decision of like, People know the Nutty Professor. I guess the pop culture thing. Listening to a podcast on The Simpsons recently, Talking Simpsons, it's crazy how many times The Simpsons recreated the Dean Martin Jerry Lewis reunion at least four times in the first 10 seasons. Oh, like with Krusty and Sideshow Bob being reunited. And Krusty and his dad as well, and Krusty and Sideshow Mel. Like they just kept doing it because it was such a big part of their life. Do you remember Animaniacs had a character that was based on Jerry Lewis? Vaguely. I mean, speaking of The Simpsons, that's who Frank is, Jerry Lewis. So. Oh, that's right. But yeah, Animaniacs had like this very pretentious like comedy director character who... Oh, yeah, he did the serious Jerry, and then he'd go wacky, right? Yeah, yeah, and he said, you know me, I'm a comedy genius, and he would put on sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Animaniacs and Freakazoid were not made for children. There's, like, no jokes for children in that, unless you live through, like, the boomers era of entertainment. This is something that, by the way, I really uh, don't like about modern-day Simpsons, because I guess there are a lot of new writers. It's no longer rooted in that particular boomer worldview. I mean, it can't be anymore. <laughs> like... It can't be but then like what what is the show even it's like uh, it's kids imitating their parents well i think the simpsons problem now is that it's oftentimes making jokes about things that are in the present which feel dated by the time we see it as opposed to what inspired the writers decades when they were kids there's a big difference because what are the simpsons going to reference now that you know they loved when they were kids the current writers the simpsons <laughs> that's pretty much it right 
And that's why The Simpsons are bad. All right, that's been my YouTube show. But uh, thank you very much, David. I love to know that there were Jerry Lewis impersonators still roaming the baseball stands at that time. And uh, my personal opinion, mascots are scary and I don't want them to interact with me. Thank you very much. I agree. So our next letter is from John Paul McKenna and it goes, Hey guys, I just wanted to share a moment that I had today that is the reason that keeps me coming back to the podcast. Will and Justin poking fun at the legend of David Fincher, whose work I love for the record, while referring to something that I have never heard of before, Pauline Kael's 50-year-old Wells versus Makowitz essay, and if it's the kind of th- as if it's the kind of thing that comes up every day. It's been said before, but it bears repeating that you guys continually make what would otherwise be dry academic film criticism, not just accessible, but highly entertaining for dummies like me. Thanks for the education, GP. John, you are not a dummy. It's just, <laughs> we are nerds. We're essentially the Simpsons writers referencing stuff way before our time. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that last week. We were talking about that essay, Raising Cain, as if everybody knows about it. It's like, well, of course, of course, in Raising Cain. <laughs> of course, everyone knows Jerry Lewis. That is very obvious. We don't need to actually couch this in a reference. I would say getting back to the Simpsons, another big problem, we know what really grinds my gears, is that they constantly tell you what the reference is. It's the worst being like ah just like in the classic movie uh the artist it's like no just make the joke make it a non-sequitur for people that don't get it but i'm glad that um we give enough context to people because i think that's something that we worry about a lot that like we're just talking about stuff that people are like what the hell are they talking about so by the time people listen to this, they've probably all got their Don't Let the River Beast Get You Blu-rays in the mail, right? By the time this is posted, they have all been sent and people should have received confirmation that they are on their way. But they're still available at goldninjavideo.com. Beautiful releases. Can't miss. If you listen to this podcast, you should buy this Blu-ray. So we should be selling like thousands of these Blu-rays. Although uh, probably not because uh, this is a one-man operation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, you mean like me getting it out to everybody if a thousand orders flooded? I'll get to them eventually, but uh, I'm saying that you should own it because this movie's hilarious. And as we said before, uh, the Blu-ray comes with a movie that you can't even watch on the internet because it's not available anywhere. Druids, Druids everywhere. Never been released before this Blu-ray. I got my copy of Don't Let the River Beast Get You and I was like a kid in the candy store, you know? Like, even though I contributed to it, I was so excited to have it. The director, Charles Roxburgh, sent me like, 15 minutes of uncut behind the scenes footage you can just hang out on the set for 15 minutes so you know if you like the movie yeah you want these special features i mean there's an amazing little documentary that uh charlie roxburgh shot and edited and sent to me about a short film that he made he didn't need to do this but he went that extra step him and his friend just talking about a 16 millimeter short that they made that you can find on the disc and that doc is exclusive to that disc as well so yeah check it out and also by Moturn on Moturn, the book that me and Will did, interviewing Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh, now available on Amazon. And hey, uh, leave an Amazon user review. Or if you really don't want to give Amazon your money directly and it doesn't say available, email me and I'll, I'll set you up at the moment. But uh, anybody that did order it, they're on their way out the door. And uh, yeah, enjoy. And like Will said, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. So what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, we're talking about another great Asian filmmaker, uh, Steven Seagal. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, We are returning to Steven Seagal to talk about a recent film of his called Attrition, which we were interested in checking out because we saw an interview with Steven Seagal where he said that this was the best movie he ever made. And of course, Seagal 
the last 20 years of his career are a disgrace, you know, a horrible, horrible, horrible film one after another. So we wanted to see is attrition good. Yep. And we discuss it on the show. So that's five dollars a month. Patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And what are we doing next week? Will? We have one final Shocktober episode for you. We are returning to a subject that we talked about Oh, very early. One of the first 10 episodes, we talked about Roger Corman, but we are looking at it from a different angle. We are talking about films directed by women that Roger Corman produced. Corman was unusual because he hired a lot of women to direct films, particularly in the 70s when most people didn't hire women. And some of these films have even been interpreted by critics as being feminist. I'm talking about Slumber Party Massacre. I'm talking about Strip to Kill. I'm talking about Humanoids of the Deep. I mean, Humanoids from the Deep, we'll have stuff to discuss because uh, the director, it's not really her final vision. (laughs) And that's another interesting thing about these films because... Even though Roger Corman hired uh, women at all levels of production, much more than most of his contemporaries, you know, he was a bit of a meddlesome producer. Yeah, he had his own ideas of how things should be done. And I mean, a lot of women like to say he hired us because we work cheaper than men. (laughs) And that's why we did all this stuff. Sorry, I don't want to spoil the thesis of the episode when we get to it. But yeah, that will come up. So yeah, like you said, Strip to Kill, Humanoid from the Deep, and Slumber Party Massacre. We should point out, the three Slumber Party Massacre were all directed by different women. So uh, that's what we're doing next week on The Important Cinema Club. And until then, my name is Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Ooh, it's a last-minute October spooky alert. I, Justin DeClue, will be hosting a 24-hour horror movie mind melter online. Yes, that's right. 24 hours of horror movies starting on October 31st at noon Eastern Standard Time and going all the way to noon November 1st, which I have to say is also my birthday. So come... Join me and whoever else is wild enough to show up, watch one movie, watch two, or go the whole mile and watch all 24 hours worth. I should note that as far as marathons go, this one will be extra eclectic because I'm picking all movies that I have never seen before. Now, I picked them very specifically and programmed it as well as I could, but because I might end up being alone doing most of this, I wanted to actually have fun. So that's why I picked stuff I've never seen before. Come on, join the Horror Movie Mind Melter at twitch.tv slash Horror Movie Mind Melter. And it's going to be this Saturday, October 31st, starting at noon at that website, going all the way till November 1st at noon. And there will be prizes for people that hang out. I have tons of Blu-rays and DVDs to give away. Horror stuff. So join in. You could get some prizes out of it, as well as having an unforgettable movie experience. And while I will not be announcing what I will be playing, I will be dropping hints and when movies are starting on my Twitter page at DeCluJ, that's D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. So just follow me on there, and in the next few days, I'll be dropping a ton more info. Hope to see you there! And I would also like to thank some of the new patrons that we've got this week, which include Tobias H., John Hegel, Manuel Labs, James Majur, Iad Bidwi, Louis Waters, Don Stromorza, and Luke Devereaux. Thank you so much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. If you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. Well, 
How do you feel now that you've gone through Ernestathon? You, you're familiar with the term post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> so for people that don't know, me and Will spent a day last week watching the last five films that Ernest P. Worrell started, a.k.a. Jim Varney. We didn't take really any breaks except once to take lunch. And it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, we, we started with Ernest Rides again. We watched all the ones that were produced not by the Disney company. So all the ones that went direct to video. So back to basics. This is the core creative team that created Ernest that will give us the purest vision of him, right, Will? Yeah, and so uh, none of the Hollywood niceties are there anymore. Very low budget films, increasingly low budget. Jim Varney getting older and sweatier as he goes along. Uh, Ernest rides again. Ernest goes to school. Slam dunk Ernest. Ernest goes to Africa. And there we were, panting and wheezing and exhausted watching these films. And there's still one more, and it's Ernest in the Army. <laughs> Almost killed you. I mean, you should listen to the episode. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, it'll be up for only like a couple more days that it's gone forever. You can hear me and Will going insane <laughs> between each movie because we recorded a little bit after each movie ended and we get shriekier and wilder as we record every segment. <laughs> Cause I was actually quite looking forward to this because I loved Ernest, you know, I mean, honestly, it was exactly what I expected it to be. I think that you were tired from the get go though, because by the end of the first one, you're like, Oh, enough, no more. Just get, get on with it. Yes. Okay. And actually I expected to like Ernest rides again more. So maybe that burned you right from the beginning and you knew that it was all downhill from there. So you're like, oh my God, this is going to be worse than taking my medicine. Okay, but I wasn't actually shutting myself off from experiences because you saw those movies. I did. <laughs> I had a great time. <laughs> Big smile on my face, mostly from watching Will watch the movies. Every time Will groaned, I was like, <laughs> I I had a good time too, fundamentally, because this is the life I've chosen for myself. This is the life I want to live. I want to be watching Ernest movies five in a row with my pal Justin. It's my it's my kind of pain, you know. I've I've had I've had jobs where uh, the best days are not as good as a day watching five Ernest movies in a row. So, you know, who can complain? So what you're trying to say is you're recommending Ernest all of those movies <laughs> to any person who is considering doing it. I would love to see somebody else attempt that. I think what's good about watching all those five in a row is I will probably never watch them again in my life. I'm like, I am good. <laughs> I have seen them. They had my full attention. I will never be tempted again. They have been burned in my memory, and I can just revisit those memories as opposed to having to sit down and just let 90 minutes of my life just fall through my fingertips like sand. I did feel around the time we got to Slam Dunk Ernest, which is only oh. which is only the third oh of the five. I, I remember watching that one and thinking, okay, what even is Ernest? Like, <laughs> what is this as a character? How is how did he make nine movies? Because there's not there's not a lot there. Yeah, it's weird. There wasn't any set pieces. Or, like, he didn't even return to his, like, gimmicks that much. When they showed up, like, near the end, we were all so happy that he was doing his shtick again. I mean, Slam Dunk Ernest, I think has to be one of the most miserable comedy films I have ever seen. <laughs> See, I, I don't want to spoil too much from that Patreon episode we did, but I ranked at number three out of five. Uh, shocking. Which I don't feel good about. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I mean, if you want more details, listen to that episode. Ha you've been tricked. You just listened to an infomercial for our Earth podcast. <laughs> you've been earnested, a.k.a. you watched something you were hoping you were like, you would like, and it just fell away from you. But you know what? Jim Varney, I still like to see him up on screen. He still brought a smile to my face. You know, if anything, I've left that marathon with more respect for Jim Varney than I had before. Well, certainly more empathy. I mean, could you imagine doing all that? I can't imagine getting up every day to do that knowing that everyone will be watching the stone face and in Ernest goes to Africa and Ernest in the army there is there is nothing in those films he's the whole show he has nothing to work with he is working up a storm forget James Brown this man is the hardest working man in entertainment 